today's guest, Plastia. I'm 22 years old. I lived for aggressions and I'm living a genocide right now. People don't know a lot about Gaza. What they know about Gaza is what they see on the TV, but they don't know about us Palestinians, about the culture. There are many beautiful places in Gaza. You always think you have time. Now, when I look back at the videos, I knew that things will happen, but I never knew that it will be that bad. I never imagined that a genocide will last for 100 days. I just feel numb. I feel the minute there's a ceasefire, every Palestinian will start to process what happened. They will be like, oh, I actually lost my husband, my kid, my whole family. People will start to process. If you post about what's happening, you get shadow banned. If you report about what's happening, you get killed. What's happening in Lebanon, in Yemen, in Congo, in Sudan, it's a lot to process or to understand as a human or as a journalist. Israel is making Gaza uninhabitable. We're all from Palestine, yet we're refugees in Palestine. It's 1948 and Nakba again and maybe even worse. Hello and welcome to episode 112 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for decolonization, justice, and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you're talking about reclaiming Lebanon, but you've never been to Lebanon. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. You can also find us on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and additional podcasts per week. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only so really exciting stuff check us out on patreon.com slash palestine pod okay guys today's guest is the one the only the 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 beautiful the talented the young the courageous there's so many superlatives we can use the plestia al-aqad she came up in this current moment as one of the leading voices in gaza reporting on the ongoing genocide i first followed Plestia immediately, actually, probably on the first or the second day. And I remember the first video that Plestia made, which had a tremendous impact on me, where she was standing in her family house, showing us the view outside of her window, which had turned completely gray, and you couldn't see anything anymore. And it was clearly the aftermath of airstrikes in the area. And Plestia also provided for us a commentary in that same video where she told us that because now a war had began, that we were going to see neighbors, people helping one another, leaving their doors open because Palestinians in Gaza have a custom of leaving their doors open in case anyone needs to find shelter, in case anyone needs to hide or seek safety. And so you had reminded us that your door was open, your neighbor's door was open, and that now you were in this moment, this space where you were preparing for what was going to be clearly a war. But at the time, I don't think you had the expectation that it would be what it has turned into today, which is that today we've now seen 100 days of this genocide, 
with over 70% of Gaza completely destroyed, with the overwhelming majority of Palestinians in Gaza displaced, many living in tents, some living outside, with the entire population of Gaza starving and dehydrated, and with by now around 30,000 Palestinians who have been killed, well over 10,000 of them being babies and children, and over 60,000 Palestinians being injured. And these are just like some of the basic statistics that sort of represent where we are at this point in time. But there's so, 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 so much more. And I'm not going to read everything out here because, of course, the idea is to hear from Plestia. But I just wanted to get us situated in the context and understand where we are at this point in time. So let's go back to the beginning, Plestia. Let's go back to the beginning. Do you remember making that initial video? And can you give us a little bit of what your expectations were and what your fears and anxieties were around that time, October 7th, 8th, 9th? And okay, first of all, thank you, Lara and Michael, for having me. Sorry for interrupting. Did I interrupt? No, 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 that's okay. That's okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Michael will cut it. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Oh, I'm keeping that for sure. (laughs) okay so thank you Lara and Michael for having me on this podcast I was looking forward to it and to get back to your question it's crazy it's actually insane how on the 7th and 8th and 9th of October now when I look back at the videos okay I knew that things will happen but I never knew that it will be that bad I never ever imagined that a genocide will last for 100 days you know like at first the funny thing what maybe no one knows is when I filmed the video of like me looking at the view of the window it was for my group chat it was for my friends in college some of them they speak English some Arabic so so it was for them they were like what's happening we hear it on the news bombings are nearby and blah 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 and I still had internet the more there's bombing the there was no electricity, there was nothing. And you just don't, you don't know what to do. So the first thing that came to my mind, just open your phone and continue filming. And I posted that. And I never thought that what's happening would go down to history. It's basically history. It's 1948 and Nakba again, and maybe even worse. Did you study journalism? Yeah, I studied in new media and journalism. So since I was in grade six at school, I knew that I wanted to be a journalist. My Arabic teacher back then, Ms. Rawan Surani, she was a journalist and she was teaching at the American International School. And I was like, at wow of her work. I used to watch what she's doing. And I was like, yeah, I want to be a journalist when I grow up. And when I was in grade 12 and applying for colleges, I knew that I want to be, I want to be a journalist, study something related to the media, maybe drama, something like that. So I studied the new media and journalism to keep my options open, like as a reporter, as a journalist. And when I graduated, from Cyprus I came back to Gaza and I was so eager to film the beauty of Gaza like to show the world Gaza through my eyes like you know how people they don't know a lot about Gaza what they know about Gaza is what they see on the TV but they don't know about us Palestinians about the culture about our favorite places even me I was surprised like I left for three years and when I came back I was like wow there are many new restaurants and new cafes like like there are many beautiful places in Gaza but that's the thing you always think you have time so time passed I started working doing internships and I thought I always have time to film Gaza the way I want or to do vlogs or to do reports or whatever then 
overnight, more than 2 million people's life has changed. Overnight, your favorite cafes are gone, your favorite people are dead. Everything is basically erased. Like it's been more than 100 days. And until now, I feel that I didn't process what happened. Like I don't understand. I just feel numb. I feel the minute there's a ceasefire, not me, like every Palestinian will start to process what happened. They will be like, oh, okay. I actually lost my husband, my kid, my whole family. People will start to process. Like when I was back in Gaza reporting, when I heard the news of someone got killed, I didn't feel that sad. It's not that I don't have emotions, but it felt like, oh, my colleague got dead. I will die the next hour. No problem. But now that I'm far away, it's different. I was telling Michael about this a few days ago, this notion that no Palestinian worldwide, including Palestinians in forced exile, have actually processed anything relating to this moment. Our bodies are still in this extreme state of anxiety and fight or flight. And it's only about survival. And so you're just either experiencing it on the ground or watching your family and friends experience it on the ground. But nobody has entered the phase of actually grieving and beginning to heal and process because the threat is still active. Exactly, like 24-7 bombs are happening. A massacre in the north, another massacre in the south. People are getting arrested in the West Bank. It's a lot happening even in the world, like what's happening What's happening in Lebanon, in Yemen, in Congo, in Sudan. It's a lot to process or to understand as a human or as a journalist. Yes, completely. And so for the moment, it's just intake and store it somewhere in your brain until later and just survive it's just taking it day by day second by second hour by hour like you said there was this expectation for you that you wouldn't even actually survive and I think all of Gaza's journalists would agree with you I mean I don't want to speak for them but I'm sure that all of them would agree with you on that statement that there's no expectation of survival so you're just yeah um you reported on the ground for 46 days, Danny, at David's last days. Yeah. And then you announced that you would be leaving Gaza because you had an opportunity to leave through Rafah with your family to protect the safety of your own family, which when I saw you made that announcement, I posted that everyone should understand that this was not a choice. You didn't choose this. I remember post, yeah. You did not choose this. The reason why I felt it was necessary to make that statement was because a lot of the Zionist propaganda about the Nakba in 1948 was, oh, thank you, you for bringing to... this. Yeah, you chose to leave. You chose to leave your houses. No, 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 no. None of this is a choice. None of this is a voluntary choice made without duress or extreme circumstances. And that's the part that they leave out. What choice did you have? They destroyed the entire place where you live. And they're continuing to target everybody, civilians and journalists, and you would have been next. It's not, there's no choice in this. Israel is making Gaza uninhabitable. So basically when the health system is destroyed, when schools are being used as shelters and universities are bombed and the infrastructure is destroyed, what's left of Gaza? You know, like that's it. That's the sad thing. Even when there's a ceasefire now or the genocide will end, then what's next? What will happen? What about all the orphans? What about all the wounded people in Gaza? What about the students? What about everybody in Gaza? Like, it's not like we want to be refugees or we want to leave our countries or we want to leave elsewhere. But the question is, what choices do we have? You know, exactly. The other choice is death, right? 
That's that's what the occupation is making every Palestinian choose, but Palestinians always choose life. You know, you know what's the thing? Me personally, when I was in Gaza, I wasn't afraid of death. Like it's fine if I'm if I am a martyr, it's okay. But what I was afraid of, like me being cut into pieces, people collecting my limbs, or like being severely burned. Because I swear, I never forget the scenes that I saw at the hospitals or even in the streets. Like I used to see children, and I asked my colleague, and no. Is that dirt from being under the rubble? And you know, why is there skin tone like that? I was genuinely asking, not making fun or something. And he was like, and what's wrong with you? They're severely burned. That's why they look like that. And I genuinely thought, it's not me that I thought it's dirt, but I wanted it to be dirt. Like, okay, back in my brain, I know that it may be like they're burned, but I wanted to believe that no, they're not burned. Maybe it's dirt from being under the rubble and everything, but it's actually burned. So what lives do these children have or what lives do Gazans have after the 100 days of genocide and the genocide even didn't stop till now? You know, like Gaza can't take another 100 days of genocide and it's not only 100 days. It's been like that for 75 years. It's crazy that they're constantly making Palestinians choose between terrible options, right? Like yeah. you you were hoping it was dirt from rubble because that would have been a relief over the severe burn of an artillery rocket strike. And it's like, exactly. why the fuck are these the options? Yeah. The world thinks that we have options, but we don't. Like, for example, I remember when I used to post the stories and post uh, many people, they were concerned for my safety. They're like, be careful, don't post your location and so on, which is cute. I appreciate them looking after me. But what they don't understand is they're quadcopter drones, the, the borders are closed. So they literally know everything. They're not waiting for my Instagram post to know where I am. Right. You know, Fasia, what you said reminds me of what my own family in Gaza told me which was that they're not making prayer to stay alive. They're just making prayer to not be trapped under the rubble. Exactly, exactly. That's yeah. the thing. People are not afraid of death, are afraid of what will happen. Like, I remember the conversations I used to have with two of my colleagues, Hatim and Muhammad. We were a team, always working together to the same channels. So we always had these type of conversations, like if, if a bombing happened when we're together, I was like, if you saw me dying and I was severely injured or burned or or there's a leg here and my leg, leave me, like leave me till I die. And uh, and my colleague was like, okay, for me personally, if I lost one leg, save me. I can live without one leg. It's okay. <laughs> but if it was, it was an arm, yeah. It, but if it was an arm or a leg, leave me to die. The other colleague was like, I still have children and family, so maybe try to save me. And that was a conversation, I swear, like we were in the car working and that's a casual conversation that we're having. And then we're like, yeah, you have family. We should probably save you first. Uh, no, no, reach out to your phone to cover. And we thought it's normal. Like we never stopped and we were like, and what are we talking about or what's happening? We continued our day. But now that I'm in Australia, not in Gaza, I'm, I'm being like, wow, what type of conversations? Like, is this even supposed to be a conversation anywhere in the world? No, it's not. So it's insane. Yeah, I. so what you just said about, is this even supposed to be a conversation? It reminds me that so much of my reaction to what I have seen and the, the scenes and also the, the words that are coming out of people's mouths, so much of my reaction is nobody in the world should have to put words together in a sentence that sound like this. Like, 
the just yesterday I saw a testimony about somebody in Gaza talking about how the dogs are very hungry and how they are going under the rubble eating from the bodies that have not been recovered and coming out of the rubble still with body parts in their mouths and this this individual this journalist said he saw a dog come out of the rubble with a toddler's hand or foot I forgot in his mouth and he had to run after the dog to get it so that he could try to bury it and I read this collection of words and sentences and I was so shocked saying this should not exist this whole thing should not exist these words next to one another should not exist for anyone in the world 100% you know and what's like Everyone in Gaza has a story. There are more than 2.1 million people in Gaza. Every time there's a story, every person experienced loss. What's happening is beyond what anyone would have ever imagined. You know how we think our grandparents exaggerate just because they're old? Like my grandpa, may his soul rest in peace, he used to always tell me about the Nakba. So sometimes I was like, I don't want to go to school today. And just being a kid. And he's telling me how privileged I am and how the streets were broken and how he had nothing yet. He went to school and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, he's just telling me that so I can go to school. He's just doing that. And I'm like, now I will be that grandma one day telling her grandchildren what I experienced and it will be exactly like that because now like when a ceasefire takes place okay the schools are still being used as a shelters but let's say another schools will be built okay how will kids go they, they will go walking on destroyed demolished streets so it's history repeating itself what I once thought is exaggeration is actually real life is actually reality I wish it was exaggeration I wish Did your grandparents come from parts of Palestine outside of Gaza and you were pushed into Gaza like the majority of Gaza or your family from Gaza originally? Okay, so my grandpa is not original from Gaza and my grandma are not original from Gaza, but because of Nakba 1948, they went to Kuwait, they went to Iraq, they went to many countries and to Gaza as well. You know, that's the sad thing that we're all from Palestine, yet we're refugees in Palestine. Yeah, it's a it's a phenomenon that I that I don't think people understand, right? Do you even understand that? No, the majority of the people in Gaza are not from Gaza. They are from cities and villages that are just to the north of Gaza in what is today called Israel. But before 1948, it was not called Israel. It was called Palestine. And that's where their houses are. And inshallah, it'll be called Palestine again very soon. Inshallah. Plasia, do you want to go back to Gaza as soon as possible? Of course, of course. I'd love to, but I'm actually afraid. Like, now I'm looking back at videos. On the first day, I was like, oh my God, I can't recognize the street. I can't recognize my neighborhood. And I'm like, now it's been more than 100 days. So will I recognize the streets? Will I even recognize Gaza? Will we be able to return to Gaza? Like, I have many questions in mind. Like, I can't imagine being there and just walking in the streets and everything is gone like the people the places it's like like Gaza became a ghost town so I can't imagine but of course I'd love to be there picking up on this theme of a ghost town when we were planning how this episode would go you and I were saying we didn't want to be redundant and relive all of the days of your reporting because your reporting speaks for itself and it's out there for the world to see 
And I said, maybe we should try to give people some information that they don't already have, like about Gaza before October 7th and how you used to spend your days, your favorite places to go, your favorite neighborhoods. Tell us about Tell us about Gaza's neighborhoods, because, you know, when we read, oh, this is Shuja'iyah, this, this is, you know, Sheikh Radwan, this is, the, they're just names to us, right? Like, we don't know what is in that neighborhood. So when we read the names of Gaza's neighborhoods, we don't know what they are. We want to hear from you about about as, meant, as much as you can tell us about Gaza's neighborhoods. Okay, you know, it's so weird to remember the memories of the places, the cafes, and the people knowing that they're now all gone. But what I like the most about Gaza is the fast-paced life and the community. Like, I used to work a full-time job, and I used to, I used to tutor uh, little kids sometimes, and I still have time to go out. Like, now when I remember my days in Gaza, it feels like I had a 25 hours day, not a 24 hours. Like, okay, you work, you still have time to hang out. I, I just love the community there. Like, for example, a school teacher is not just a school teacher. No, we're close, we have bond we check up on each other even the person who's in the market like he's not just a person in the market no we go to the market i'm like what do you want to buy i i want to buy my mom's favorite chocolate for example so what do you recommend then the next day did she like the chocolate did she like we're so we're so connected it's a caring community so if you were sad walking in the streets you find people staring then coming to you and what's wrong can i help can i do something and i love how gaza is small so almost everyone knows everyone so it's impossible to go out of your house without saying hi, bye to at least 10 people. So, for example, there was this cafe I used to always go to. And I remember for a week I was busy with work, so I didn't go. And when I went back, the waiters were sad. They're like, did you find another cafe? And I was like explaining, no, I was busy. I swear I didn't go out. It's like I'm explaining to them that I'm not a cheater. I didn't cheat. And without even ordering, they know my order. They, they bring it and they're like, is it fine? Do you want me to change it? It's these small things, this act of kindness that makes you feel that you belong, especially, especially during the genocide. Like during the genocide, I literally, Lara, used to go to tents and cover the story of people in tents and how they barely have any food and how they have nothing, yet they are offering. Like I remember this lady, how she offered me a bread and it's all what she have. Like they don't even have cheese or anything to put it inside the bread. And she was like, I'm sorry, we don't have anything but this. And I'm like, it's more than enough. You don't have to. So I love how it's a caring community, how people care for each other, how people know you, how people remember you. And I love how like Gaza is full of life. You'll always find cafes open. You'll always find restaurants open. A Rimal area in Gaza City, it's like the downtown, you know, it's always busy, it's full of people, like during Eid, during Ramadan, it never closes, really, it never closes. And what I like is like, because it's not strict, for example, this cafe, it doesn't open from 8 till 12. Like, I remember I was in a cafe with my whole family, so it was Ramadan, we were there together and it was two, and there was only us and another table. So we called the waiter, like, should we leave? When do you guys close? Like, we don't want to keep you late just because we're here. And we're like, we close whenever you leave. So we're like, you know, just tell us when you want to close so we can leave. <laughs> and like, you can kick us out, it's okay. And he's like, no, and it seems you're enjoying your time. So we like- That seems like a standoff <laughs> that could last a long time. Yeah. Like this type of community, you don't find it elsewhere, you know, like in other countries, they'll just bring you the, to pay, the bill to pay and they're like, 
go home. <laughs> like they're almost kicking you out. But like in Gaza, it's oh, definitely. Oh, I've been kicked out of a lot of restaurants for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> when I was studying in Cyprus, like at first I thought it's like Gaza and it's fine and I'll just stay. Then we look around, it's only me and my friends, the only people sitting, and they turn off the light and they're like, yeah, we should leave. <laughs> So it's just that the community there is different. I love how people care about each other. I think it's because of the aggressions and our life. Like if my struggles in Gaza taught me one thing is to care more about people, you know, and I want to talk about survival guilt. The reason I want to talk about it is in Gaza, you always know that someone has it worse. So that pushes you to give more. Like, for example, my friend the other day, she called me. She told me she's sitting with uh, her relatives. So her uncle uh, lost his house. Her aunt lost a child and she didn't lose her home. So my friend was telling me she felt bad that she didn't lose her home as if because it's unusual. It's unusual that your house is not bombed. So she was like so grateful, like, okay, I lost family members. I lost kids, but I still have a house. Others don't. So I can't be sad and I should like invite people over. I still have a house. You want to come? You know, uh, I know people, they were obviously sad and devastated because they lost family members. Then they met other people who lost family members, but they haven't been able to even bury them. So they were like, okay, thank God, at least we buried our own family members. So I have to be there for that person who didn't bury his family or her family members. So that's the thing, like the struggles make you think of other people and make you feel guilty that, oh, I didn't lose a family member, but this person did. You know, it's just it's just the community there. Like, I really love the community. I love our culture. I love how people care about each other. Like, what breaks my heart the most is children. Like, what children are going through? What lives will these children will have? There is this girl, her name is Baila San. She lost her leg. So I did a story with her and I was talking to her and her dad told me that like Bailasan wants to be a teacher when she grows up and she always has her friends around teaching them and lecturing them and acting as a teacher. And, and he was like, thank God when they bombed the house, when we were in it, thank God it was nighttime. I was like, why? I was like, because if it was during the day, then by Lasan neighbors or like people and people will be at the house and, and bad things would have happened to them too. So I'm glad it's only us. And I'm like, what type of conversation is that? You know, when I look back and remember the conversations we used to have, I'm like, wow. Everybody's always trying to find something to rationalize why it's okay for them. Like it's a it's a coping mechanism of trauma. It is. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Can you tell me about like the, your favorite day growing up? Like just when you had the most fun, the most joy, anything you remember like Beach that? Days. Okay. Beach days. I love the sea a lot. And I think the sea is everyone's favorite place in Gaza. I don't like to speak on people's behalf, but this thing I speak on people's behalf. I think every Palestinian loves the sea. It is what makes life more bearable in Gaza. You know, it's literally the sea. So my favorite days and the days that I remember the most are like Fridays and how the family we just used to gather together, go to the sea, uh, have lunch there. Then when I when like growing up, I used to go to the sea also, but with my friends uh, during the school trips, when I was in school, we used to go to the sea as a school trip. Like all of my good memories were at the sea, you know, the sea means a lot to me. And I think the sea means a lot to every Palestinian. For example, we barely have any electricity in Gaza. It's like four to six hours a day. So in the summer, it's really hot. What can we do? We go to the sea 
and it's really crowded it's full of people and that makes me happy like this family is just eating this family they're swimming this family is eating corn this family is eating watermelon like i love to see people happy especially in gaza the sentiment you just shared about like everybody wanting to say no, no no it's okay at least i didn't have this at least this didn't happen to me so it's fine whatever loss i experience is not a big deal because somebody else has it worse is something that i i can agree that even palestinians in exile and diaspora who are not in gaza and have not been in gaza maybe their whole life we also feel it because whatever happened to my family in gaza so far has been property destruction has been you know the digging up of my great grandparents graves and i said well at least it's just graves at least it's just you know the property at least it's you know at least it wasn't like my entire family was killed but then even as i'm having this internal dialogue with myself i'm i'm saying no 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 but it's crazy that their graves were dug up that's an insane <laughs> i should be able to process that and 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 mourn that but even mourning it seems like an insane premise when you realize all the things that are happening to people who are alive so you just keep going back and forth about what you're allowed to feel even though the whole premise is that this whole thing is insane yeah that that's it that's the thing in Gaza you keep thinking of other people and how other people have it way worse so you think what's happening to you is okay but nothing is okay of what's happening really yeah can you Talk to us about some of your favorite shops or cafes, like by name, and tell us like where they were located, what you would order there, just to give some more documenting to the things that were erased. Okay, I have many favorite places in Gaza. So one of my favorite cafes is Q Cafe, and of course, it got demolished. It's like a small cozy cafe, and the view is the sea. Of course, I used to love it. I love people who work there. I almost even know the people who goes there because like. I went there almost every day and خلص, you become familiar with people who come who come to the cafe as well. I used to always hang out there with my friends. There's also a restaurant and a hotel called Ruth's. I used to go there every Thursday and I knew I know exactly who I will see every Thursday when I go. Like I don't have to tell my friends I'm going there, see you. Like I know for a fact I will see them. They know for a fact they will see me. That's the thing, as I told you before, Gaza is a small community. We only had like uh, one mall in Gaza city it was capital mall so you'll always find everyone there because it's the only mall we have and that's the sad thing whenever nice shops open nice places open like you get to enjoy them for a couple of months a year or a two then they bombed and erased again it's been like that since forever like I lived I'm 22 years old I lived for aggressions and I'm living a genocide right now So whenever you build nice memories, these memories get erased. You know how when our houses get bombed, we're like, it's okay, it's property, property. as you said, at least it's not my family. But their houses are not just the property or, or like, it's not about the, the money or the rocks. Like, these houses have memories, you know? What else do I love in Gaza? I, I love everything. But now I find it hard to answer your question with everything that's happening, with all the destruction that I'm seeing, that I'm seeing. It's like hard to remember how we had a normal life before all of that. So, okay, a nice story that I remember. My friend, my friend, she's Christian, and she had a wedding in the church. So I went there 
and after one month like after one month the genocide started and they bombed the church and I went there as a reporter to cover what's happening and I was like wow one month ago I was here wearing a dress my friend was getting married like we were here for a happy moment I was filming her like she was walking with candles doing everything and now I'm here to report that children got killed, babies got killed, that church got bombed. So that's the thing. Whenever you have nice memories, everything gets serious. Yeah, there's this expectation that it won't stay that way. Because like you said, you've, you're have you 22, you've lived four aggressions and a genocide. And so even when the aggressions end, there's always this expectation in the back of the mind that you're still not free. So because you're still not free, even if there's quiet for a few days, few months, there's always this expectation that something will happen again. Yeah. You always ask yourself, when will the next genocide be? When will the next aggression be? Who, what family, who family member will I, whom my family members will I lose next? Like that's life in Gaza or that's life in Palestine. Michael, do you have any questions? I forgot I was on the podcast. Uh, yeah, plus, yeah. Um, honestly, I'm just I'm so honored to be in your presence and in conversation with you. And um, you're I'm not like wrapping up or anything. I just uh, wanted to let you know that before it's you know. There's like you said, you always think you're gonna have more time. So I just want to let you yeah. know right now how much I respect you. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You know what's the thing? Maybe I'm giving you brief answers to the questions, but well, after more than 100 days. It's becoming weird to remember the normal life that we used to have. I mean, it was never normal, but after everything that happened, we want the normal life we used to have. Like now it feels weird. Like, oh, I used to dress up and go to a cafe. I used to go to a restaurant. I used to go for a walk with my friends. I'm like, wow, as if it's something unusual to do that with everything that's happening. You deserve that, though. You deserve, everybody deserves that. Everybody deserves the opportunity to live life pleasantly of course inshallah you're obviously still in contact with a lot of the journalists on the ground day by day we're witnessing some journalists continue their reporting others announce the end of their reporting even the ones that are announcing the end of their reporting some of them are trying to leave Gaza others are just staying in Gaza but they've decided that they're no longer going to show what is happening and there's this sentiment that they feel like they did everything they could they showed the world for a hundred days but it didn't change anything so why keep why keep doing it people don't realize how difficult it is to actually put all of that content together people think it's just like this normal thing that's happening that oh you're just filming what you're seeing but can you give us a sense of like how much effort and struggle it was to actually film the content that you were showing for the world when you were on the ground? Oh God, that's a good question. You know, it's very difficult. Like even the word difficult is an understatement because we're filming our favorite city getting demolished and destroyed. Your homeland getting demolished and destroyed. It's not only that I'm filming rubble or like I'm, fil I'm filming a destroyed house or a destroyed building. Everything that got bombed and destroyed has a meaning for us Palestinians. So me filming, for example, that this church got demolished. I'm a Muslim and I have memories there because I have Christian friends and I remember how they used to go to the church, pray, and how they spent their Eids there. Uh, me, for example, documenting and filming how a, 
how a university got demolished. This university is there were students and this university is they had dreams, like graduation parties and ceremonies here. And now I'm just filming a demolishment. I'm just filming people who are using this university as a shelter instead of students being there as a students, they're being there as displaced people. So like just walking, you know, just walking in the streets and saying and seeing and watching everything in front of you destroyed and demolished. It's difficult. It's difficult because everything in Gaza means a lot to us. Every person in Gaza means a lot to me and to, and to, to us Palestinians in general. So it's not easy to wake up every day that is if you slept Aslan and you don't know what's ahead of your day. You don't know today what will be bombed. One time I was with my colleagues reporting and we went across a house and uh, we don't know the people there, but we got to know them and they offered us and we stayed for like half an hour and we went on with with our day two days later this house got bombed and these people were killed so like whenever you try to do a memory or like, like when we walk in the streets during the genocide that's happening my colleagues and I are always like focus on the street because tomorrow it will be gone maybe tomorrow it will be demolished maybe today is the last time I walk in the street maybe today is the last time I see this person so it's really difficult. It's really difficult that you're from Gaza and you're reporting what's happening in Gaza. Like we're not just some foreign journalists who came to Gaza to report what's happening and that's it. And you're doing the work of like a full news production team as well. Because you're not just taking the footage, right? You're editing it. You're putting it together. You're captioning it. You're doing voiceover. Like you are creating the type of content that usually requires like four different people at least limited electricity no like power and no like limited internet exactly exactly like we don't even have houses to stay in or offices to work and we're just walking we're just working in the street we're just working in a car we're just working in a hospital in random places with barely any internet with barely any energy with literally nothing like you know what's being reported like what i used to report and what people what journalists are reporting right now like it's not even 10 percent of what's happening not that journalists are not doing a great job reporting they are doing doing an excellent job, but a lot is happening at the same time. A lot is happening in different areas. You don't have fuel to move. You barely have electricity to post. Like I looked at my gallery the other day and I was like, wow, I have many unposted stuff. And the reason I didn't post them is because of the internet, because I wasn't able to charge my phone that day, for example, not that I don't want to post them, to post them. So that's the thing. I knew that I want to be a journalist, but I never thought that I'd be a genocide journalist, a war journalist. I don't know what to call it. Palestinians do journalism on such a high level that it's like American journalists couldn't even conceive of it. They don't even recognize it. They're not in the same level. It's like playing professional basketball with a toddler. Yeah, <laughs> that's so annoying to describe it. Well, there's also this responsibility, right? This feeling that if I don't tell the world what's happening, then nobody will because there are no foreign journalists because Israel prevents them from entering Gaza. So it's literally... Yeah. And they are literally killing journalists. <laughs> Right. So so you must have felt this immense responsibility to tell the world, because if you didn't tell the world, like you said, whatever you told the world anyway is just a fraction of what happened. And that I think people really need to keep in mind, because so many people who have been following what's happening in Gaza, watching all of the photos, watching all of the videos, they have reached a level of trauma in their mind that's like, I've never been so traumatized. I've never seen anything like this. But they have to remember 
that even everything they're seeing is not even 1% of what's actually happening. So that should, that, that should in, in, instill in us a rage that this is this mu this cannot go on. And then maybe you get the content posted on limited internet, on limited power, and guess what? Meta takes it down. Meta gives you like a warning or strikes your content, takes it off because why? It violates their community guidelines. But like genocide propaganda skyrockets to the front page. Yeah. Everyone is trying to silence us, really. Like you post about what's happening, you get shadow banned. You report about what's you report about what's happening, you get killed. Can you talk a little bit about how you're spending your days right now. I can't imagine just the difference in living genocide and then going to a place like Australia where everything is just calm and easy and no bombs and there's food and there's water and there's a hot shower yeah it's hard to go from an extreme to an extreme like being hearing uh, the sounds of bombs the drones the quadcopters the whole time then silence the whole times you know and in gaza it felt like during the genocide it felt like wow i was able to shower today or like wow i was able to eat today like you're so privileged if you're able to eat or you're able to shower and i'm just here being able to eat whenever i want or being able to shower whenever i want like it's crazy what's happening in gaza then a few kilometers away in another country is life is normal you know, like what a world we live in. A tale of two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Exactly. Are you able to eat? Are you able to sleep? Like, you know, sometimes I feel that I'm living two different lives. Like whenever I'm like eating or like taking a shower or like talking to my family, then I'm online watching everything that's happening to my country, to my whole land, to my homeland. I'm like, I just can't understand how some people in the world are are being able to eat and some people in the world are being starved to death, you know? Like, sometimes I'm, I'm able to eat, sometimes I'm, I'm able to sleep, sometimes I'm not. Like, it's really a roller coaster of emotions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine that it's not, uh, it's not straightforward. It's not like, oh, now I'm in Australia, so I can go back to just eating and showering and sleeping because I'm in safety. It's It's... Yeah, and you know, when I was in Gaza, whenever I was able to shower during the genocide, I used to always take pictures and take a video of it and tell everybody, like, guess what? I was able to shower today or yesterday. It was a big deal. And people like, where did you get booted from? Oh, my God. It was a big deal. It was an event. And now, like, it's been maybe one month or more since I traveled. And whenever I shower, I just like, I'm like, wow, I was able to shower today. Like, you know, it's it's weird. It's weird. Yeah. Do you still have family left in Gaza? Yeah, of course. I have a lot of relatives there. I have many friends. Like, yeah. Do you get the feeling that people are, I'm seeing a lot of like GoFundMes pop up more and more. People are trying to fund their way out of Gaza. And I don't think people realize that people are being like extorted when if they are able to leave Gaza, they have to pay incredible sums. Can you speak about that? It's insane that you have to pay huge amounts of money to not die or be into pieces. You know, like people, uh, Palestinians, they don't want to leave their land. They love Gaza. They want to live in their country, of course. Palestinians love Gaza and they love their country and their homeland and they want to stay in it. But what Israel is doing is not leaving them any other options. At, and it's insane that you have to pay huge amounts of money 
just that you don't die, just that you don't get killed. Can you share with us a story of somebody that maybe you haven't had a chance to post about yet? and that this would be the time and space to give them some coverage. There are many stories that I didn't even film or post about it because people were afraid of cameras and journalists and the media, and I can't blame them. Like, I honestly can't blame them. There, There is this lady, she's 28 or 29, 29 years old. I'll never forget how she looks. So she lost her, like, arm from here here and she lost two of his two of her legs so 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 she's basically living with a face and like quarter of her body not even half of her body so I remember talking to her and she told me what happened and how they bombed the house how they cut her from under the rubble and so she was like I don't want people to see me that way and I was like I totally understand like I'm just talking to you and turns out she was following me so I was like it's nothing for the media you don't want me to take pictures or post I totally respect that and you can't blame people like there's uh, this old woman who did a video and her video was viral then with a with a sniper she got shot so you can't blame people that they're afraid of the media or talking to the media or putting their stories out there they're, they are already in danger everyone in Gaza is already in danger so what if they were on the media that would be more dangerous and I'd never want to put any person in more danger so I always leave them the choice that's a really important point Plastia because people don't realize the privilege of even having Palestinian stories shared with the world is an extreme act of courage because those people are taking the risk that they will be targeted for sharing their story. And so if you turn away, if you don't look, you're telling them that they took that risk for nothing. And so the least that we can do is is owe it to them to, to, to listen, to watch their stories that they are risking their lives to put out. 100%. And you know what I like that many people, uh, they wanted me to film their stories that I was just walking, minding my own business. And they were like, we follow you. We know you. Can you film our story? Can you film us? And I was like, yeah, of course, I'd love to. That's the point of what I'm doing. But I understand how sensitive it was and how dangerous the situation was. So I never pressured anyone. Like it's not just dangerous for the journalist. It's dangerous also for the subject. Exactly. And you can't convince them that, no, it, it will be fine. No one will target you. Nothing bad will happen. You can't say that. You can't lie. Everybody in your Instagram comments knows they're going to target you. <laughs> That's yeah. why they're telling you not to check in, because everybody is Julian Assange on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Hey, can you talk about where your name comes from, Lestia? Okay, it comes from the first tribe that lived in Palestine. So I have a Palestinian name, Plisti. Yeah, the Peleset, right? The group of sea people who go back as far as the second millennium BCE. So your parents likely gave you that name in an effort to stop the erasure of Palestinian culture. Yeah, and you know, my name always brings up... Palestine in a conversation whenever I meet anyone they're like yeah you have an interesting name what does it mean and like you signed up for this now we will talk about Palestine for hours I also thought it was interesting that you said that you're drawn to the sea and your name comes from sea bearing people yeah it's all connected mm-hmm. plus yeah we've been going for an hour is there anything you want to leave our audience with this is your opportunity to just share any last words. 
the only thing that I want to say is I know that we all feel useless sometimes and we all feel hopeless, but please don't give up on posting, protesting and sharing and engaging with Palestinian content. It's been more than 75 years and more than 100 days and it's time for this to change. So don't give up on Palestine because Palestine needs you. Your voice matters as my voice matters. Every voice matters. So don't give up. Thank you. Habib. Amazing. Thank you so much. I want Thank to say you for that having you, me as well. Of course. We're so honored to be in conversation with you. Your voice has touched so many people. And the the point I brought up about your name, there's a content creator called Paul, and he did a whole video about you. And so it's like, you have no idea your impact. It's It's going to last forever. And so thank we thank you so much for your courage and for all of your coverage and uh, for your time here today. It's been an honor. Thank you for your time as well. Okay, you know what to think? I never realized that I have many people following me until I traveled because back in Gaza, I barely had any internet. Like, okay, I receive emails. The amount of followers is increasing. People are starting to recognize me more, but everyone in Gaza knows everyone. So it wasn't a big deal that people recognize me in Gaza. But when I traveled, I'm like, wow, people know me. And what made me happy, it's not about me, Palestine, and that people know me, but what made me happy is people are following Palestinian people. They're following, like they're engaging with Palestinian content. Like you following me basically means you care about Palestine. So that was what made me happy like i never saw the video you're talking about so send it to me please <laughs> okay i will absolutely yeah right they're not following you for an outfit of the day or a skincare routine they're like, yeah, exactly. because they care about palestine and that's the well, i can't wait to see that type of content video. inshallah <laughs> yeah you will see my hair routine soon <laughs> i think everything that's happening has affected everyone's mind yes. that we don't know how to process what's happening or what to comment anymore so I'm or like, what's oh, appropriate yes. what's not appropriate yes well the yeah, line exactly. is so blended because of all the things that we're seeing the conversations we're having it's just like what you were saying it's like this is not a normal conversation to have among people but nothing what... is normal exactly there is no more normal they've ruined it Pasya, prayers for healing, prayers that you return to Gaza, prayers that all Palestinians in forced exile are able to return to their lands, including those Palestinians in, in diaspora who have been outside of Palestine for up to 75 years now. Prayers for rebuilding Gaza and for freedom, for freedom for all Palestinians that we have a space in this earth on our land where we can live and grow and be free. And I pray that, that that's what the future holds for all of us. Inshallah, that will happen soon. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Basia. you so much. Bye. Bye. Folks, that's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Check out our full episodes and sources, www.palestinepod.com. Follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and look for us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have as good a day as you can. Look,